I wonder what Jesus would find today if he came on Christmas in 2023. Like, uh, what kind of season would Christmas be? You know, all around the world together, gatherings are happening. We're not the only church here in the Chippewa Valley praising him. The highly anticipated newborn king born in a stable, born in Bethlehem, not just a little town, an insignificant town for some, wasn't even registered in Old Testament books like Joshua 15 and Nehemiah 11. I wonder what Jesus would find if he came today. Maybe he would find the unrest in our world. The war in Ukraine is in month 22. We know about terror in the Holy Lands. There's a mental health crisis amongst our students that has spiked even before the pandemic. And crazy as it seems, loneliness is off the charts. <laughs> crazy because we are the most connected generation to information and entertainment ever. So it, it seemed rather odd, to me at least, that a focus came at an NFL post-game press conference. You heard me right. A head coach, John Harbaugh of the Baltimore Ravens, gave a great tie and a reminder into the real meaning of what we celebrate in December. Let me set the context. Uh, the team, the Baltimore Ravens, had just won an overtime thriller against the Los Angeles Rams. And the head coach at the press conference compliments the rival coach. He compliments the key players on the other team. And then he tells the reporter that he reminded his players that December football is really a part of something much bigger. It's part of something called Advent. So I thought it'd be helpful if we went to that press conference. And also to the Rams, that's a really good football team. Sean had those guys ready to play. They played great football. Stafford, Donald, the defense, every one of their players played great football the whole game. It was a hard-fought win. The thing I want to share with you is uh, kind of what we shared with the team this week and the guys talked about the time of year, all right, and the fact that uh, there are moments in life, and this is your time, all right? 500 years from now, none of us are going to be around. 500 years from now, none of us were here. So we're given this time with these people in this place for a purpose. And there's December, and the time is December. And December football has a meaning to it, all right? And it's preparation for great events to come. And you've got to put yourself in position with December football for what's to come. It's also the Advent season. Advent comes from the Latin adventos which means anticipation and preparation for an amazing event, which is the coming of our Savior and celebrating the Christ, all right? The good news that changes the world and changes it for all eternity. I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to page 622. There's Bibles that are there. The book of Isaiah, we've been going through a series. We've been calling it the Gospel of Isaiah. And Isaiah steps... Well, he's before the Christmas season, and he gives us a look at to what is the anticipation of Jesus coming. Isaiah chapter 42 on page 622. I want to just give you um, these verses beginning in verse 6. Did you find it there? It says this, Isaiah 42, verse 6. It says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, and I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you, and I will make you to, to be a covenant. That's a key word. A covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To open up eyes that are blind. To free captives from prison. To release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. 
And then I want to invite you to um, read this next two verses with me. Let's read together. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have been taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. This long-anticipated king is the promise of the long-given covenant. Jesus is the promise. He would be a ruler with a different kind of kingdom that his people, the nation of Israel, the Jews thought that they would need or have to have. And he would actually be a light to the Gentiles. So maybe a little bit of background information here would be helpful to you. When our Heavenly Father entered a relationship, a covenant relationship with Abraham, and then he passed it down to Isaac, and then to his grandson, Jacob, Israel, he made this promise that he would be watching over them, providing over them. They would be his people, and he would be their God. It was best summarized in a blessing and curses for his people. The idea would be that he would be his people. They would trust him and put their faith in him and him alone and worship him alone. If they followed that, God would pour out his blessings. But if they didn't, well, curses would follow, including death. Why? Because there's no life outside of God's presence. Those who followed, even though they fell short and repented, were, and repented, were blessed. But those who flagrantly disobeyed, unfortunately, they were cursed. Question, how did that blessing, cursing go? How did they do? Answer, just like you and I would do. Not so good. The seventh book in the Bible is called the Book of Judges. It's an Old Testament book, and it's summarized by a repeated cyclical pattern of generational failures. The track record of covenant people wasn't so hot. They broke their commitment and their promise, 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 many times, just like we do. But our Father, our Heavenly Father, can't, didn't, and won't ever break His end of the covenant promise. People will be people. That blessing, cursed language gets translated in our day as well, too, kind of subtly, and it goes like this. He knows when you are sleeping. He knows when you are awake. He knows when you're bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. And let's face it, having an old guy with a big beard smoking a pipe watching you sleep is kind of creepy, maybe just a little bit. But that cute song gets translated into our thinking, did I do good enough for God to let me into heaven, for him to love me? Did I do good enough? I mean, I'm, I'm better than when I compare myself to other people, yeah, but am I good enough? short answer is no none of us are that's why the highly anticipated newborn king came because of our predicament John 1 5 puts it this way the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it Christian author Paul David Tripp writes it this way everybody searches for joy somewhere God has placed this quest in each of our hearts. It is there to drive us to him. It is there because we are made for him. But sadly, in their lifelong quest for joy, most people ignore God. In their God amnesia, they look for joy where it cannot be found. Because they do, they always come up empty. And these next two sentences are just so powerful. 
it's important to remember that you can search for joy in only two places. Either you have found joy to the fullest extent vertically, or you're shopping for it horizontally. The physical created world is full of engaged and entertaining delights, but it is essential to know that nothing in the physical world can give you the joy that ultimately your heart longs for. So two powerful quotes from two different generations speak of this. One was an Irish political activist in the late 1800s, in the mid-1950s, 19 George Bernard Shaw. He pointed out that there's two sources of unhappiness in life. One is not getting what you want. The other is getting it. Actor and comedian Jim Carrey would uh, uh, concur to that. His famous quote was this, I think everybody, everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of <clears throat> so they can see. That's not the answer. Paul David Tripp goes on to write this. He says, the delights of the physical world were carefully crafted to point to the one who alone can give one's heart eternal delight. Only God and God alone can bring the deepest of joy and contentment to your heart. <clears throat> the highly anticipated newborn king was the promise of the covenant, and he would humble himself even before he was, gone, he was born. Think about it this way. The virgin birth had scandalous ripple, rippling. When, when Joseph took Mary and, and didn't divorce her, automatically in that small town in Nazareth, there was all kinds of assumptions. <coughs> Mary was either unfaithful or this couple had been messed around. Jesus was born in a town of Bethlehem. It wasn't even on some maps in the ancient Middle East. Bethlehem was considered a tiny, insignificant town. And this, this would be the hope of the world? It's not enough to simply be a hopeful person or be one full of faith. It's essential to know where you place your faith in, the object. But the object of our faith is actually a who, a person. John 1.14 puts it this way. The word, the highly anticipated newborn king, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. You see this highly anticipated newborn king, the one that Isaiah writes about, has come for not necessarily what we want, but what we need. Verse 7 spells it out, and the words are not very flattering. Did you catch them? It says, we are blind, clueless. We are captives to sin. We are prison dwellers and dungeon residents. And our home is darkness. Since the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, called the fall, or better yet, rebellion, humans have been running to the dark alleys, the dark corners of our hearts, our first parents, Adam and Eve, began this trend. Their reactions are they covered themselves. They wanted to get out of sight. They were absolutely terrified of being exposed. Aren't we terrified? A question that haunts us, what if someone found out? But the highly anticipated newborn king, he changed all that. You may say, why do you say that, Pastor Kirk? Because when the magi or the wise men from the east in Matthew chapter 2 came, 
They were from the nations. And when they came to the newborn king, they came not the same night he was born. Scholars think it was a couple weeks or months after. Sorry if that screws up your nativity set, but deal with it. Notice the gifts that they came, right? They brought gold. Okay, that, that's, that's for the king. They brought frankincense. What's that all about? That connected with Jesus' role as a high priest, an intercessor, one who could relate to us. And myrrh, that's what they would prepare bodies to die. And then what did they do afterwards? After they presented the gifts, Matthew chapter 2 says they worshipped him. They bowed down and worshipped him. Same thing you would do. If I could time capsule all of us and ship us over to Bethlehem to get to the actual site that archaeologists think was the site of the nativity, you too, just like me, would need to stoop and bow and get low to worship the king. You see, we need a rescuer for our plight because we're blind, because we're captives to sin, because we're prison dwellers and dungeon residents, and our home is darkness. And so two well-known hymns give us some help. We sing them at Christmas time. You hear them at Christmas time. The first one is this, silent night, holy night, son of God loves pure light, radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of er. What's the next word? Redeeming grace. To redeem means to buy back, to pay for a penalty. We carry a debt we can't pay. We are blind to sin and we are a prison to sin. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a World War II Nazi prison casualty. He wrote this letter on November 21st, 1943 in a, from a prison in Berlin. He said, a prison cell is a good analogy for Advent and Christmas. One waits, one hopes, one does this or that, ultimately negligible things, but the door is locked and can only be opened from the outside. So a second hymn gives a hint on who does the unlocking. The second hymn is the famous hymn by Isaac Watts called Joy to the World. And there's a phrase that goes like this. He comes to make his blessings flow. And that's the end of the song. No, it's not. It goes, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Why did Jesus come? Why did he rest in the manger? Why was he nailed to the cross? Why did he borrow an empty tomb and then burst out of the tomb? Not just to make his blessings flow, but to take care of the curse. Everything will be destroyed by the, of the prisons, of the dungeons. The darkness will be restored. Jesus said in Revelation 21, he said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And this highly anticipated newborn king is not out of touch with our reality. You might be thinking here, sitting here thinking, Pastor, you have no idea what I've done. You have no idea my thoughts, my words, my actions. I'm embarrassed. I'm humiliated. I'm filled with shame. Hear this word from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. It says this, we don't have a high priest. Remember the frankincense? That's what they used in temple worship. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize, unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect 
has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Every respect, what does that mean? It's extensive and it's intensive. Meaning this, it's extensive regarding scope and reach. He gets it. It's intensive in its depth and its understanding. Jesus gets us. Far as the curse is found. John Stott, an English pastor and author, talks about the curse in explaining sin. He says this, the essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where God deserves to be in charge of our lives where God puts himself where we deserve to be that is being punished on a cross. What a mess. What a mess we've made. What a mess I've made. Scotty Smith is a Christian pastor out of Nashville. Many of us enjoy his book called Everyday Prayers. He said this, our need for grace gets highlighted during the holiday season. Old wounds get triggered. Brokenness gets neon lighted. Messy relationships get messier. Siblings can act their siblingness. Personal agendas and pity parties wage war against each other. Loneliness feels its loneliness. Why is that so? First of all, we're created for loving relationships with God himself and each other, but sin mucked it up. Now we often act like porcupines cuddling on a cold winter night. We move towards each other for warmth, but we hurt and get hurt by each other's quills. Then we withdraw and we get lonely and then we try it all over again. But Jesus didn't invent this cycle. No, he broke through that cycle. He was born in a world filled with madness and sadness, self-interest and self-indulgence, and he has come. He has come to make his blessings flow not drip as far as the curse is found. This highly anticipated newborn king stands alone. He stands alone for worship and praise, and he specializes in making new and renewed people of all ages and stages. Verse 7 says this, My glory I give to no other. Yahweh is not one of many gods, He's not like superior, and there are inferior gods as comparison. I was meeting with a D1 athlete this week, and I teased him about, um, as a fan, watching early games in the season to pad the stats so that their overall record would go, get bigger, and look better. Like big universities going against a much weaker opponent and then just hammering them. And I told him, I said, you know, this would be like Memorial's boys varsity or North girls hockey team or North girls varsity basketball team versus Lakeshore Elementary, third and fourth graders, all-star alternates. Yeah, I hope you beat them. When God says, my glory I give to no other, he's not one of many gods. Biblical scholars look at that kind of language as warlike. Divine jealousy and exclusiveness. Idolatry may be tolerant of other religions, but not Yahweh. Worship is for him alone, not to be shared. He does not 
franchise out his glory. The only hope of the world is this highly anticipated newborn king. Isaiah 49 says, 6 says this, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. I will make you, I will make you a light for the Gentiles so they reach the ends of the earth. Jesus has always been a threat. He's always been a threat to ruling powers. The highly anticipated newborn king submitted himself to be, think of that, a dependent baby. Yet kings and rulers on both sides of his life, at the beginning of his life and the end of his life, were threatened by him. In Matthew chapter 2, Herod was asked, where is the one born of the Jews? Where is the one born king of the Jews? The Bible tells us that Herod was deeply agitated. The man killed his wife and three of his sons. He lived in paranoia. At the end of Jesus' life, Governor Pontius Pilate of Jerusalem said, are you the king of the Jews? The highly anticipated newborn king presents everyone with a clear choice. Bow down and worship him. Recognize his authoritative acclaim on every square inch of the universe, including your life, or, or simply shrug at the nativity niceties, go drink some eggnog, and go live your life as you see fit. There's no middle ground. For many, Jesus is all right, as long as he stays in the manger as a baby. But the idea of Jesus dying on the cross for them and rising from the dead for you and me, no. The idea of Jesus saying they need to turn from their sins and put their faith in him, like Herod, they see Jesus as a threat. A lot of people are okay with God if he stays out of their life. They want God assisting them, someone to call in case of an emergency. But that's the extent of their faith. They wrongly believe that they make their own luck and they are captains of their own ships and the master of their own destiny. So maybe you're, you're thinking some of the thoughts that came from a Barna research that was done in March of 2023. They listed the top reasons why people question Christianity. Of course, human suffering and conflict in the world made the list, but the one that was far and away the most cited wasn't anything new. And what they cited was religious hypocrisy. Nothing new. Religious hypocrisy. Ronald Rollheiser, a Canadian Catholic priest who's still alive, said these words. And because of his Catholicism, he uses the word church instead of Christianity. And I'm going to substitute that, but I want to have integrity for the quote. The church, or Christianity, is always God hung among two thieves. Is always God hung among two thieves. No one should be surprised or shocked at how badly the church or Christianity has betrayed the gospel and how much it continues to do so today. It's never done well. Conversely, however, nobody should deny the good Followers of Christ have done either. It has carried grace, produced saints, morally challenged the planet, and made, however imperfectly, a house for God to dwell here on earth. To be a member of the church or followers of Jesus is to carry the mantle of both the worst of sin and the finest heroism of the soul. 
Because the church, the followers of Christ, Christianity, always look exactly as it looked at the original crucifixion. God hung among thieves. So there's two responses. There's two responses to the one who was born and hung among thieves. Maybe for you, you're thinking, no, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. I'm glad this works for you. No, thanks. I can respect that. But I, I would appeal to you. I would appeal to you for you to dig in on your own, on your own. We often use a, a, a phrase. We say it kind of flippantly, I'm no Einstein, okay? You hear that. Not Einstein bagels, although they're really good bagels. But people will say, I'm no Einstein. But when Albert Einstein, one of the smartest men, makes a comment about the things of God, I want to listen to what he says. And I'd invite you to as well. Albert Einstein remarked in an interview in a Saturday evening post, October 26, 1929, he was, he, he, he was talking about Jesus. And though he never expressed any belief in a personal God, he believed in the historical Jesus. He was interacting with a best-selling autobiography by Emma Ludwig. Ludwig's Jesus, Einstein replied, is shallow. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrase mongers, however artful. No man can dispose of Christianity with a bon mot. Witty remark. So the interviewer from the Saturday Evening Post says this, so you accept the historical existence of Jesus. And this is what Einstein said. He said unquestionably, no one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. He goes on to say, how different, for instance, is the impressions which we receive from the account of legendary heroes of antiquity like Theseus, who was a legendary hero from Greek mythology, who was considered an early king of Athens. Helpful to have that. Thesis and other heroes of, the, of his type lack the authentic vitality of Jesus. If you're here this afternoon and you're saying, I'm not sure about this, I got lots of questions. I'm saying, listen to a super smart guy. Listen to a super smart guy. And on your own, pick up your phone. Read the Gospel of John. If you want, I have something for you. It's at the Welcome Center. There's no, no, no strings attached. You can pick up. It's simply a Gospel of John. And you can read about who Jesus is. This one that <laughs> Albert Einstein says pulsates in every page. Of course, there's another response. Knowing who Christ is and what he's done. Well, let me set that up with a a story, maybe in, in our denominational magazine that comes out every other month, uh, a pastor from Rhode Island gave this powerful story, shared this powerful story from Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard about the incarnation of God in Christ. He said this, made the, gave the story, there was a loving and powerful king who was known throughout the world, but he was very unhappy for he desired a wife. And without a queen, his vast palace was empty. And one day while riding through the streets of a small village, 
the king saw a beautiful peasant girl. He instantly fell in love with her and found her riding by her house again, hoping to get another glimpse of her. The king wondered, how might I win her love, he thought. I will draw up a royal decree. I'll require her to become my queen. But as he considered this, he realized that by forcing her to marry him, he could never be certain of her love. And then he said, I will dress in my finest clothes, and I will invite her to the palace. I will overwhelm her with my possessions and sweep her off her feet. Then she'll marry me. The more he thought about it, the more he wondered if she'd be only marrying him for his possessions. And then at last, the king knew what he had to do. He would shed his royal robes. He'd go to the village. He'd become one of the peasants. He would work and suffer alongside them. He would actually become a peasant to win the woman's respect in hopes that she would eventually fall in love with him. The second response is this. If you've never trusted Christ, if you've never asked Christ into your heart, why wouldn't you want to do that on Christmas Eve? Why wouldn't you want to do that now? To know that the highly anticipated newborn king is here. He's come to take your sins. How do you do that? Well, first of all is this. Realize that we are sinners. I'm a sinner. We have broken God's holy commands time after time after time again. Recognize that. Number two, recognize that Jesus died on the cross. It's not just a religious symbol. It's a supernatural act that he gives to you as a gift. He shed his blood for every sin you've ever committed and ever will commit. And number three, repent and leave that life of sin. And then, as a result of that, obey what he calls you to do. I had a friend of mine, he was on, a, on his way to go hunting, and we sat at, he stayed overnight. He looked at me and he, last, um, earlier this month, and he looked at me and he said, Kirk, do you know what Jesus' love language is? I said, well, I know what my dog's is. It's popcorn. And I know what it is for Julie, including chocolate. But what is Jesus' love language? He said, it's obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you obey what I've commanded. So if you've never done this before, I'd, I'd simply invite you right now, all of us, why don't we bow our heads and close our eyes. I'd invite you to pray a simple prayer. And on Christmas Eve, pray to ask Christ into your heart. When you're done, I'm going to ask you to look up and we'll just make eye contact if you pray that prayer for the very first time. This is a simple prayer. You can repeat after me. Lord Jesus, forgive me. Wash my sins away. Take the blood that you have shed and cover me. Have mercy upon me. Fill me with your spirit. Give me a love for your word. A hatred towards sin. Thank you for your marvelous grace. If you prayed that prayer for the very first time or said it again, I want you to look up at me and I want to make eye contact with you. Praise God.
For those of you who prayed that prayer, I want to give you some very important instructions. What do I do next? Here's what you do next. Make sure you tell a friend. Maybe the one that you came to church with or maybe someone that you know is a follower of Jesus. Call them, text them. Text them. Yeah, it's legal to do that on Christmas for sure. Number two, it's super important that you have a Bible and start reading it. Start in John. If you don't have a Bible, we want to give you one. My friend Andy Johnson is one of our elders. He'll be out at the Welcome Center when we're done with this song. I want to give you that. No cost. Take one. And number three is this. Find a gospel teaching church that talks a ton about Jesus, that opens up God's word, a place where you can grow and serve. If you don't have a church home and you're in Eau Claire, we'd love for you to be here. But if you're here and you say, what about other churches? I could recommend at least a half a dozen to 10 great churches with pastors who love Jesus in our Chippewa Valley. We are so blessed with great churches. I'd love to tell you about those churches if it's not here. But for those of you who prayed that prayer for the very first time, listen to these words. Not based on my authority. Oh, no. Based on what the Bible says. Your name has now been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You're a child, a daughter, a son of the King. Yeah, it's true. Now God gives you his resources. He gives his resources to grow. There's a world that will try to beat the living daylights out of you. You need others with you. We'd love to walk that journey with you. So we're going to sing. We're going to sing this song, Joy to the World. Remember that chorus. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He's the curse breaker. So stand with me. Let's sing.